Listener Production. The creators of this podcast would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which it is recorded. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are the first storytellers of this land. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, as well as any Indigenous people who may be listening today. Even things like guys, like to me, guys is like not gendered. Like, uh, yeah, I know it's it's so funny. I find it interesting. Okay, let, let's start. Like, uh, yeah. uh, everyone relax. This is Toe Bob with friends. I'm Will Anderson. <laughs> uh, Reese Nicholson's here. We've already started chatting, so we might as well just talk about it. And, um, and we were talking about gendered language, and uh, like I'm really conscious about you know uh, the idea of trying to refer to people in you know with, like with the pronouns they prefer, or, like to not use like the big one for me is ableist language. Like it's just so ingrained as part of our culture to use like mad and insane or psycho or whatever these or things might be. Even like dumb. Like I yeah in the it, through the process of editing the book. It was like, you know, obviously the publisher wants to kind of future-proof the book as well. And a, there's recipes, and a lot of the recipes were called like, you know, roast chicken for dum-dums. And and they kind of had to be like, you know, it's not the worst thing you could say, but there is not a great connection to that. And you can change it or you don't have to change it. But it's completely up to you. But like dum-dums maybe isn't great for some people. And it's like, oh, yeah. Like it was just interesting having someone go through your work and go like, this is a thing that you say that maybe isn't right and in 10 years will absolutely not be right anymore. Well, that's part of that conversation, isn't it? Like when we have these people who hold on to – because in your book it serves a purpose in that you introduce early in the book the the idea that you like the for dummies range yeah. of things and therefore yeah. it feels like it's a callback to a pre-existing piece of literature that you are yeah. – literature I call the for dummies. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Do they still make them? They must. I mean, I wonder if they have changed. Like, is there any chance that the for dummies, like, I what mean. A, that's a big meeting for those yeah, guys. Right? Like, guys, we've got to rethink the whole th- It's like, I, I always think about the, and this is such an old thought, but like the first day of COVID and just the meeting they had to have on Zoom at Corona. Like, just for how are we going to deal with this? What are we going to do? Like, are people going to – like, just having to rechange your entire brand because of something that's happened? Well, this is – so, the for dummies, by the way, still exist, still <laughs> proudly. Like, you know, what I will say is uh, when I'm looking at the images that I can see on here, they highlight what the thing is. So, it's very much football for dummies. For dummies. Right? Yeah. Calculus for dummies. For dummies. So, so, I think the for dummies <laughs> has been <laughs> – the internet for dummies, which is just the internet now. So when it comes to terms and, you know, like the confusion of – because also I wrestle with the idea of being like I'm 50 in January. Like I'm a man of a certain age. Like I'm a white straight-ish, you know, Australian man of my generation and age and industry as well, right? Like because there's also that um, – you know, thing in our industry where there is a a certain type of comedian, and this is not an Australian-specific problem. In fact, it probably happens more internationally than it does in Australia at this point, but becoming a 
you know, middle-aged white man who thinks that everything was better in the olden days and can't understand and what happened to the larrikin and you can't say anything anymore. Why can't I make yeah. my racist Why don't I get sexist? booked at the store anymore? Yeah. Well, <laughs> heaps of reasons. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, there's still a few people getting booked there who shouldn't be, so you're no, behind them. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I lo- like seeing, uh, you know, and look, there's plenty of gigs in Brisbane still for you. Um, the... But then I, I think you and look, I'm I'm not saying this to suck your dick. I the um you are someone though that I think has ridden that pretty perfectly. Like I think is kind of the the perfect career trajectory for that. Because like when I was like a teenager and you were like on the glass house and stuff, you were like you were like the young guy. Like you were like the 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 cool new young like and look, he's got painted nails and stuff. And as you've kind of gotten older and I think it's like a thing that we all kind of yearn for. I think by you, all the work you make is interested. Like you are a constantly interested person, which I think is what those other people don't. And I think it's like I was having a conversation with someone the other day about um, being a comedian is being relevant. It is all about being relevant, like how you need to understand kind of what's going on to be able to make a comment about it and you need to have someone to relate to. And if at a certain point you decide you are you are the relevant thing instead of being relevant, do you know what I mean? Like it, it, you, yeah. you shut yourself off. I'd never and- thought of it like that, but that makes a lot of sense the way you framed it because I was talking to Gillian Cosgriff about uh, this idea of, you know, that all her shows have a question at the heart of them. Like, you know, they're not an answer. They're a big question that they're asking, right? And I do think that there is a point in maybe the evolution of some like public people where they decide they are the answer. Yeah, <laughs> and that doesn't yeah. that isn't relevant just to comedy. That's relevant across oh, the board. Some of them like, get two hundred million dollar um, <laughs> radio <Yeah. laughs> contracts. <laughs> so it is this thing where we are constantly in this world where language changes and that you've got to accept the idea that something you say now it might age badly there might be something in the book and so this is where the book brings us back to the book reese has written a book called dish it's fantastic i bought a copy so i don't even have well they, they they offered to send me a pdf race for oh, okay. the chat, oh. you know, as they, they tend to do, doing their job as publicists. But I, I like to hold a book in my hands when I'm reading it. So um, I held your book in my hands and I read it from uh, front cover to back cover. It's super entertaining. It's so well written. It's um, broken up in a really like, you know, in a way that really kind of keeps the momentum right through the – it has – I think that you've done a really smart thing in that when I think about your comedy style and, you know, what I admire about it the most is that you just have, like, I like people who are able to make interesting work but also want to tell, like, a heap of jokes on the way. Like, I feel like that's what stand-up comedy offers you the opportunity to do that, say, other art forms where you can express those same things can offer you. And they can offer you different things. But what stand-up specifically offers you is that you can talk about whatever you want in whatever way you want to talk about it, but you get to be funny along the way. So there's a lot of punchlines in your work, right? They're they're punchline dense. I'm obsessed with momentum, I think. 
So like, then you sit down to write a book. Well, rather than me telling you what I think first, then let me tell let you ask you about your process. So when you sit down to write a book like Dish and you know that you can't sustain like a stand-up one hour, let's say, do you know how many words uh, uh, like an hour show of yours would be? Oh, I mean, too many probably. I've no, I'm one of those people that I've never really re- – I've only ever had to write down my stand-up for like – um, I remember I had to do it once. I did a job years ago for the BBC. I did like a, a special for them and I shouldn't have been. I was too early, too early doors. Um, and I had to send them a transcript of the entire show and what a harrowing experience that was to like send off a, a Word document to some lawyer in the UK to be like, by the way, these this is what I think comedy is. Um, uh, I, I, I'd imagine they would be, I mean, how many, what, they reckon 500 words is like, Five minutes on a. Does that make no? My my, gu- my guess is that like your hour shows probably go for a, like about seven to eight thousand words on a page. Yeah, I reckon that's two words. So, but like a book is ten times that. I guess is this is the only maths I really need to get to for the sake of what I wanted to ask. You don't want to go into the is, more into the weeds about the maths. All right, I mean, okay, sure. I. Absolutely do. Of course I do. <laughs> this is the thing that I am most interested in, but I am aware that people are also listening to this for entertainment. So I'm going to like ask this. When it comes to momentum, like you can't sustain that sort of momentum for like, well, when I was like writing my book about the pandemic, like it did have a little of that momentum in it, but the reason it did was meant to it was meant to feel like that it was meant to feel like a panic attack that somebody had put on page that that was what i was going for it was like how i felt about the times i was writing about but that's not what dish is dish is a more considered look at your life and it's a comedy book and it's well it's a series of essays essentially but it's an autobiographical series of essays you're dropping into different important stages in your life and like you know constructing those stories in the way that you might tell that story on stage or at least an extrapolation of the way you might, you know, jokes and structure and, you know, like introducing ideas and leading to conclusions and all those sort of things. But in between you've broken that up. So talk to me about how you, like, how did you decide on what a momentum of like a book that's 10 times what a show would normally be? How do you just work that out? I think I tried to like, because, you know, it's my first try at something like this and it turns out when you get a book deal uh no one kind of talks to you again like and you know i had an incredible editor clive who like was there along the way to give advice and stuff like that but there's no hand holding like there's no like you know they're penguin random house they got some other stuff on um and so i kind of was left to my own devices a little bit um and i just tried to approach it i think the way way that i approach my shows which is like i do not write in order like we my husband Kyron directs my shows with me and helps me put them together. And I just write and write and write and perform it. And then we sit back and like try and build the momentum in post almost like kind of go, well, this, this bit's really working. It's almost like, and I feel like this isn't the most impressive answer, but it was purely, I just wrote and wrote and wrote at times at 2am on a Dexy to fill a word count. Um, and then in the edit, like I got obsessed <laughs> And then, uh, uh, look, it's good to have lots of friends around uh, being diagnosed as you wait for your own diagnosis. Um, And then we um, (laughs) – and then we put it together literally with Post-its. I just looked at it and just thought – 
I think I wanted it because yeah, it is a comedy book. Like I wanted to be, I wanted to make it almost easy for myself, giving this the first go, and not try and do anything. I think I've done it in the past with stand up shows where I've tried to tackle something that I was not able to that I you know is this grand idea and then you actually get going you're like oh maybe I'm not equipped with the skills and but then I realized if I set it up really simple that was like this is just a book of essays and it's going to have some recipes in it it gave me like freedom within there to make it like you know there's there's some of them are super autobiographical some of them are just my ideas on anchovies and eggs and then some of them are like there's a I'd never written satire before and I wanted to write, there's like an essay about um, how there's a, a, a essentially Illuminati of gay people trying to destroy straight white men. And I just wanted to give myself like little projects almost, which is kind of what I do with stand-up, I think. Like if you look at my material, I try and do little like, oh, I in the early days it used to be like, I think I want to be able to do a bit like Maria Bamford would do. And it's like not, it's like taking, you know, the kind of, not a style of, not not like the way that someone does something, but the kind of ethos of something. And I, then I would be like, and maybe I want to do like a kind of Paul F. Tompkins kind of style. And then maybe I want to do, and, you know, slowly kind of developing a voice over like 10, 15 years by doing that until you develop your own. And I think it's like, I wanted to try and, I really love David Sedaris. And I was like, I want to try and write it. All I wanted to do was be able to write a book that if you're reading it, there's a chance you might giggle to yourself on the train. And it, that, like, that was the momentum for me. I wanted it to read funny for most yeah, of the time. Well, it does. It's, it's funny. It's like a funny book. It's like a genuine laugh out loud book, you know, which, and there are things that are in there specifically for the purposes of comedy, you know, which kind of differentiates yeah. it from a funny autobiography to being yeah. like, you know, the, this is the purpose of this piece is mostly to make you laugh. Yeah. Like, and, and then very occasionally, like I think I've learned from some jobs I've had recently, like being on the weekly or those types of shows, allowing myself to also at the end, and I think it's kind of what you need to do in these types of books is like either finish with a, like it's same with a show, finish with a strong punchline, a callback or something, or finish with like a, you know, it's that kind of, uh, I think John Stewart almost invented the modern version of it, of that, like, look down the barrel of the camera, like, you know, jokes, 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 jokes. But this is why we really need to be fucking worried about this thing. And, like, John Oliver does it perfectly now. Like, I really, that, and, you know, I'm not talking about newsy stuff. I don't have the brain for that. But being able to, you know, make a bunch of jokes about drag race and my upbringing in a queer, happy house, but then also being able to, at the end, be like, but also, here's a bunch of reasons of why it's fucked. And here's a bunch of, like, reasons of why we need to be doing more in this. And, I, you know, I tried to talk about legalising weed as well and like that. Like, just if there was a way that felt right, because I know I don't have yet, I don't think, the kind of creative stamina to create a work in a book that is like, I even say the back, I wrote the back blurb, almost first <laughs> to be like, give myself a kind of, to be kind of like, this is not a, this book is not going to change your life. And I think that is my comfort zone is like, if, if I think it's a, a thing where a lot of comics do it sometimes where we, especially when we're younger, we try and be, you know, we, these people that we admire, we think that they just landed the way that they are. 
Does that make sense? Like, and so we yearned to be like, well, I'm going to do it. Like my first sets and some of the first things I wrote that didn't end up in the book were like these wild kind of like, you know, I was obsessed with Sarah Silverman, like original Sarah Silverman, like, and when I was, when I was first an open micer. And so I wrote a bunch of jokes about the AIDS crisis and like things like that because you're just not equipped. And I just wanted to make it easy for my event. It took me a long time to answer this question, but I just, what, with the book, I wanted to make it as easy as possible for my first kind of go at it. Well, by the way, we're not, we don't have to rush through it. You can take no, as no. much time as you want no, no. to. Yeah, I know. I just realized <laughs> that was questions. like, you know, when you find yourself kind of in like a, a circle, you're like, and, um, and, um, <laughs> which, which reminds me a lot. Like I learned the process of editing, like, you know, to come back to your question about how do I go about the momentum of it? There was a lot of failure of like, I think I'd have a, in stand-up you can have a great idea and it might last for two minutes, but then it kind of develops into 20 minutes one day or something. In a book, sometimes I'd be like, start real strong and I'd be like, oh, this is going to be such a fucking funny 5,000 word thing. And then at about 1,500 words, you're like, and we are running out of steam. <laughs> With this, there is no way to land this plane and so I've got to just and then so many of them actually just became a 200 word paragraph in another uh-huh. essay <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things you talked about is this book's not going to change your life but I guess it depends on what your parameters of changing someone's life is right so uh, like I'm, I often say of comedy that I'm cynical about the idea of um, it can change anybody's mind about anything, right? Like you know, but but that's that's disingenuous as well. What I'm cynical about is people who think they know how they can change people's minds. That's what I am skeptical of. Like comedy changes my mind all the time. Like I've been hugely influenced in a myriad of ways uh, by things that I've seen at comedy shows. The most famous example I always like to go to because it's just a very practical one that isn't like it's tangible. I saw Paul F. Tompkins do a routine about going to see Prince in LA that made me go and buy a ticket to Prince in LA. Like that routine was so good. I spent $500 on a ticket to Prince. (laughs) (laughs) And like I use to the, I, Paul F. Tompkins is, like, one of my ones, and I think he would also be someone that, um, and I've talked about him a lot, and I have I reckon it's gotten back, like, I've met him two times, and he was so lovely to me, but definitely in that way that, you know, when you meet a fan that you're like, oh, I've seen you on Twitter, and I know that you have an intense love for me, and I'm going to be very polite and ask very direct questions. And uh, we're going to finish this interaction as soon as possible. Um, the uh, but he is one of those ones that I think he would be the same in that he does not think his comedy changes people's lives, but it absolutely changed mine. In that I the way that he structured jokes and the way that the things that he would talk about, similar to Maria Bamford, made me go like, oh, there's like this whole because you know when we first are coming up, you're like this is what stand-up is and it's like whatever you saw uh when you're a kid that is what stand-up is and that is what stand-up will be forever and then you see someone like paul f and you're like oh it can be like anything and it can be like dumb or weird but it can be quite like you know there's a genuineness i think it's like and it's something that i've tried to do i think is you know there's a character there but i think comics that you can see genuine kindness in 
like through their work, if that makes sense. Like you you know that they're not climbers because they've made some weird choices in their in their careers. And um, I think I I try and do that with like and yeah, same with it. I with the book, I wanted it to be a bit. Oh, like I wanted it to read well, but I wanted it to be a bit, um, not like a like is this a cooking book or is this a memoir or what is this? And there's people like Amy Sedaris and these kind of people that really meld different kind of genres together. And you know, I think I do pretty straight stand up for lack of a better term. <laughs> pardon, <laughs> pardon, the, pardon the pun. Um, but my stand up yeah. is very kind of. I find your stand up appropriation of my culture. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, what a thing to get cancelled for! I know. Finally, <laughs> but I, th- I think I'm really interested at the moment in, you know, I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm only 33, but I've, I've been doing stand up a very particular way for, like, you know, in a few years it'll be half my life, and I'm, the book was like a fun. I was really daunted by it and really scared by it, but it was like a fun new way to like oh i can like stretch my legs with it a little bit more as well like i can do the punchlines and stuff but there is a bit of room where I, i've tried to talk about years ago i tried to write a show about having an eating disorder and it it turns out it's pretty tough especially when you're like 25 and not an incredible comedian yet the like you it, it made more sense to be able to talk about those types of things in a book because it, you're you're giving people the choice to stop reading and have a think for a minute, or or like, and I can chuck pretty full on ideas at them, like you know. I remember there's some jokes in the book about where yeah, I went on, I went on Jen Fran's show, The Feed, and talk and kept bringing up how funny I thought it was that I was talking about my eating disorder on a show called The Feed. That never got a laugh in an audience one time, but I there's but I always thought it was pretty funny. But in a book, you're able to kind of give it more context and more kind of, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I agree. And there's a control there. But it also I think you're giving the audience who are reading it, you, you know that like it's hard for somebody to step out of the room for a – like I've got a piece about that I have not done in a show. Like, But it's, it's based on a true thing that I did, which was like that I had went through a period of like death ideation. Like and I want to be able to talk about that because I think it's different to like – suicidal tendencies and I think it's something no one ever really talks about and I had this like true story about the fact that I said because I would I I wouldn't kill myself and again trigger warning for people like I'm going to talk about this but um I wouldn't kill myself and the main reason honestly is that like you know for my family and stuff like I wouldn't want to like you know that's like it's not actually for myself it's for my family and stuff and so one day I googled the most dangerous places to go on holiday because I thought, you know what? I can just like have <laughs> – like that. no one will feel sad about that, right? You know what I mean? Like that would be like, look at him. He'd venture it to the last moment, you know? Like, <laughs> And then that way, like, oh. you know. And so I like I think I, like comedically I'd love to be able to like talk about that because it is real. But every time I've even attempted it, people – it's just to – and I feel it as well because I don't want to be in a room where there's someone there who doesn't want to be hearing about that in that moment. Whereas if in your book, people have that choice in that moment. If if it's not right now where, that I can hear you talk about eating disorder because I myself have one or I can't hear you talk about this other issue because that's something that's troubling me right now, I can put it down. I can skip through. 
I can go to the next thing and, and read that instead. And I think that 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 giving your audience permission to like consume it in that way, there's something that probably means that you can talk about some other things because of that. And I think that so perfectly sums up that fucking thing about like you can't say anything anymore. Um how yeah, you can say anything as long as it's the right like I did a benefit gig the other night for Eating Disorders Victoria, who are this like incredible charity. And the room was full of either, you know, there was like sponsor and stuff, but there was either people that have suffered, people that work in mental health and like just medic medical kind of staff and stuff. And it was and I made a couple kind of like passing jokes about stuff. And it it was like the perfect place to talk about that and make some pretty dark jokes about it because they are the people that are ready to hear about it and they are the people that are ready to laugh about it. Whereas isn't it, I always find it really interesting that the people that might say in a stand-up show don't want to hear about it are often also not the people they they might know someone and it's for the right, you know, it's the right reaction, but like, oh, my sister has an eating disorder or, or like, oh, my sister's had, um, you know, death ideology problems and blah, blah, blah. And so, I, you know, that offends me that I don't want to hear it. And it's like, but the people that have actually often gone through it are the ones that are like, let's fucking talk about this, please. Jesus Christ. Like, uh, man, I, I, the other night I was doing a, I was in Wynnum at the Wynnum Fringe Festival. It's a new Fringe Festival, but it's really great. And I had a great old time doing my improvised show and a big old tent with 570 people there. And it was like a local town meeting. Wow. Everyone knew each other and it was yeah. fun. But in the front couple of rows, the the wheelchair accessible uh, rows are the, f- the first few rows in the tent, and um, there was a whole uh, bunch of people in chairs and differently abled who were there with like carers. There was a whole group of people who come out, and I love that. You know, I want everyone to be able to like. I want my you know comedy to be accessible to everybody. But afterwards, I was just having a chat to um, uh, one of the guys who was in a chair, and he goes, "Oh, I wish you'd you know spoken to me." And he said, "I would have been all right with it." And I said. Not, I'd never have a doubt that you would have been all right with it. And everyone in those front two rows, everyone there would have been all right with it. My worry was everyone else. Yeah. It wasn't me or you. <laughs> it's yeah. like, I think we would have been fine. <laughs> we would have found a way of humour and kindness with each other that would have been a very good old vibe. But the minute I venture there with a room full of people I don't know, I just don't know where that's going to necessarily it, land, right? It's such a funny, like... There's a whole thing about agency there. Like the people in the room would be uncomfortable because no matter what you were saying, they would be pretty certain you were picking on this man in a wheelchair. Whereas like, I mean, I don't know if you've gigged with Steady Eddie recently. That is the (laughs) meanest, fastest man I've ever met in my entire life. And like I, and he's a... He's a, he's a real reference, <laughs> but like <laughs> to bring up on this podcast. But steady Eddie. Steady Eddie. I, but like I've done, you know, a few years ago, I did a cruise ship with him, and there's something incredible. Um, sorry, I'll just pick up that name I've dropped. There are two names I've dropped cruise ships and Steady Eddie. I mean, um, no, he must have done a joke about like actually being steady on the high seas, right? Oh, like yeah, there yeah. must be a whole bit that. about, yeah. Okay. And there was a point <laughs> where we were all on stage together, all the comics, yeah. and they do these kind of chat things, and he was. By the end of four days out there, we're, like, on stage just being harsh to each other, like, and, you know, I was made some joke about how I'd – he made some joke about us sleeping together and I made some um, joke about, like, well, I, you know, I'll obviously beat you back to the room or something, like, whatever it was. And, the like, we were laughing, the comics were laughing, a few people, and then the rest of the audience is like, 
is one of these people homophobic and one of these people ableist yeah. and I don't know how to compute this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But then luckily the audience of a cruise ship, there's just enough people who were laughing for the wrong yeah. reasons. Yeah, so that's okay. right. So just to keep the momentum going. <laughs> We'll take you tonight just to get us through to the next bit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I was going to say, like, about the idea of, like, books making a a change. I I often think that you never know what way it's going to be, right? So I I was doing a a a show and it was all about climate change, you know, during the the pandemic and the floods up north. And I I had this – couple come up to me and just a theory by the way no. uh <laughs> say yeah they say look here's some stuff we've done our own research now they talked about the show as a way that they'd opened a conversation with their son like that what there wasn't like hey we've changed everyone's mind and blah 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 but we were able to use like the show as a way to open a conversation we weren't able to have with him and you sometimes don't know when those little moments are to reconnect you know those conversations or whatever it might be but also Like sometimes, like, so this week, like since I've read your book, uh, I have, you you speak about, and this is a story that I know about you because obviously I was around during these times, your connection through family to the band Machine Gun Fellatio. Yeah. And you just referenced a couple of the songs and I was like, you know what, I'm going to go back and I haven't listened to Unsent Letter for like 20 years, right? And I reckon I've listened to it like half a dozen times this week. It's a great song. It like, (laughs) it... And I I talk about it as much, like write an essay about my uncle who like is very important to me and kind of was that person in my family that um that everyone should have in their family where and the rest of my aunts and uncles I'm also very close with in there but he was like the youngest he was by your a show, long shot. Yeah, young and in show business and and like fun, messy fun, messy and and would turn up to Christmases and was you know essentially at the kids table um and he yeah was in this bear machine gun play show and so a lot of my kind of by the time he'd moved back to Newcastle and was working in TV and stuff, I was old enough to like, I needed someone to kind of give me a bit of purpose, I think, or at least, and you would have had this as well. Like, you know, you grew up in a, like Newcastle, very different to where you grew up, but like you have, you know that you have this thing. You're like, I feel like I might have something to offer, but I do not know where to point that. And Glenn was this incredible person to like, just help me focus it a little bit more and just, but also like, and you know, the kind of work that they made, I think there's a little bit of that in me as well, where it's like, it's pop. They made pop, but it was like pretty dirty pop. I mean, not, you know, later yeah. in their kind of career. Ex- dirty, of- experimental, arty, all those sort of things, like provocative, but like yeah. also pop. And like the lyrics are, they, you know, I think, they always kind of say there were seven members of the band and they were all lead singers and they were all mm. writers. And I think that <laughs> yes. might have been the downfall. Um, and um, methamphetamines. But the um, the it, <laughs> their last album was called Machine Gun Flesh Your Knife. Need I say more? Um, but they they did have this kind of thing that really, when you would go to their shows, it was an experience and it was like they it was rough show business but it was you know to the point where i worry about i'm one of those people that i do a sound check like i want the lighting to be right and i want like the room to look right because i think when you're coming to a show there should be some level this is my solo show i'm talking about there should be some level of like experience to it and with the book i was the same like i was very ha- like the cover i designed the cover and and i designed the font and that sort of and i was very involved in the layout because I think like when you're putting out work like that, you should 
every part of it should, you know, when you see during comedy festivals, someone's poster that you're like, I reckon that act has never seen that poster before. Like they had nothing to do with this. And to me, that's the details. That's the little, you should be, your tentacles should be in everything, I think. Well, okay, I, I do agree to a certain like, point, but, like, how do you not get lost in the details and forget about the, like, because oh, there is. very easily, fam- very, Famously, very there's easily. the, like, what you're saying is the op- there's the opposite style of comedian who's done a lot of work on their poster and their, you know, pre-show playlist and the way the room looks and possibly should have just taken a parcel to it, the actual show itself. Yeah. Oh, so- and I've been that person many, <laughs> luckily, I've always had really great posters and for a good five to seven years had very bad shows. And now luckily, finally, I think we're just getting to the point where they're coming up to match. But yeah, no, I agree. Like I used to make merch. I used to make bow ties to sell after after shows because I thought that was quite funny. The hours I put into making enough bow ties to sell to the audience when I should have been writing a joke from time to time. Um, yeah, I agree. And I think even, and I imagine you would understand this more than anyone it's getting it's such a privileged problem but i'd be really interested and yeah maybe yeah i'll ask you so like when you start getting busy it is so and you're getting more and more kind of off it like i'm in this very nice time in my career at the moment where things are like heating up and it's nice and the as i was saying to someone the other day like the rooms are getting bigger but I know at a certain point they will start getting smaller again. Mm-hmm. Um, I can tell you. I can tell you when that happened for me. <laughs> <laughs> where, the, where the agents are like, you know, we think we might. We're thinking at a, at a, a more of an intimate tour this year. What do you think? What about a what about a half run? Do you need yeah. to do the whole? <laughs> but it is like, and I think it's about acknowledging that, like, and and knowing that that's going to happen at some point. But it's. What's interesting to me is the kind of I'm a pretty hard worker and I like but it gets to a point where you start worry like, you know, I've got a show, I'm gonna do a tour next year, and it's like the dates are booked in and the thing and I've started working on it, but you start like it's it's that managing thing and like that kind of wanting the work to still be really good all the time. And I think we all know stories of people where when they got bigger and busy, the work started to suffer because they're doing a corporate every weekend and they're doing blah 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 every weekend. So I'm interested, like people who listen to, or like hopefully there's people here for the first time. Welcome, thanks for coming to the show, but uh, or welcome because I'm a branding guy, but mm. I'm not really. But it is convenient, and it means that, <laughs> like, it actually speaks to what we're talking about, which is this idea of because I've done. I don't know, 27 or 28 shows. I can't actually remember how many it is, but there's a lot of them. Um, Often they need to be – the poster and the name and all the blurb all have to be done well before I've kind of conceived what the show itself will be. And so it's been quite convenient for me to just like – I knock that away, that all gets done, and then I can concentrate. And I've also streamlined some of that stuff into a sense that I have a style, like, so that in in regard to, like, how my shows are presented, like, James Fosdyke's been doing my artwork for, like, 12 years or whatever it's been. Like, the backdrop is always the poster without me in it. Like, like there are certain things that are, like, the way that it is done You've is, like, we just kind processes. of – 
yeah, like so it's a version of that same thing. And I like consistency. That's actually one of the things that I – because then it gives me a freedom within it creatively to for the show. I'm not locked into the name being reflective of what's in the show. Like I don't care if that has – it just says this oh, is a new show, right? Um, like, yeah, I'm exactly the same. I wanted to call my show this year more of the same. But um, the, the, the I decided to change my mind about that. But I, I think it, I agree with consistency. Like I think I I hope that people can come to my shows and just know they're going to see like 55 minutes to an hour and 10 minutes of like it'll be fun and uh, I'm going to be funny the whole time and there's going to be lots of punchlines. That's all you need to know. Have fun. Yeah. Bye. So then the next step, which is the one that you're talking about, which is how you allocate your creative time. That's more interesting to me to talk about because like people who listen to a whole bunch of my podcasts will know that my constant question that I ask myself and I ask myself it out loud on this podcast and have been asking it of myself on this podcast for years and I am sure that people are sick of me asking myself this question, but I ask it regardless, which is, I've never been a full-time professional stand-up comedian since I was 24 years old. Like, and I, I wouldn't have really classified myself as being a professional full-time stand-up comedian at 24, really. But, but that was the last time. Ever since then, I have had TV, radio, book, whatever, like all these other things that have occupied my time, you know. And I've never just got to go, okay, like this year, all I have to worry about is write a stand-up show and – and do it. So, look, firstly, you can find a way. You can find the time. Oh, yeah, Like, yeah. you know, so I don't think, I mean, I've been, you know, I've had full-time radio and TV and all sorts of things and done shows. Like, does it affect the quality of them? Like, I think the biggest hurdle is, is the show a creative escape yeah. from the other thing or is it using more of the thing that is an inf- like that isn't an infinite resource? Like if if in your other job you are using a lot of your creativity, like that's why I find breakfast radio I've always found really hard to combine with stand up. It's not just the hours; it's the fact that like I'm using like the last thing my brain wants to do when I go home from breakfast radio is have like, an opinion. Try- yeah, right? Yeah, what's your take on something? Or to even identify, like in one whole stand-up show, I might have like three opinions. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, you know, three, whereas like in a morning or breakfast radio, you might have a dozen. Like, so it's even that, it's exhausting, right? And whereas if you're doing some other project that has nothing to do with your, your stand-up, I often find that your stand-up actually can flourish in that environment because – like it, yeah. Stand up almost feels like a relief or like a it's joy almost like a reaction to go to. to. It. Yeah, it's like a kind of yeah. I think yeah, that's it kind gives of you a freedom. Like I, for the first time in a while, I because I, I don't know if it's boring, but like I, I the show that I did last year, I did a return season this year, and so it's now been two years almost of doing the same show, and it's great, sure, but like. I cannot – I think usually this time of year I would be dreading putting together a new show. Not dreading but kind of like I would have just finished a tour and then the show dies, you bury it in a shallow grave <laughs> and then you move on to the next one. Like whereas I've had this extra year mm. to kind of be 
the idea of doing new material, you know, that kind of, and you're in it right now, you're doing these like improv shows. The idea of that, that bit after you, you're writing, like you're coming up with ideas and that sort of thing. And then there's that bit in the middle before your eyes go dead with material that you're like flying with it. It's like still a bit mucky and a bit messy, but it's like, it's, it's kind of there. I like cannot wait for that. I cannot wait for that that part of the creative process. And I think I didn't get that. Like, like the book was that last year. But you don't get the crackle with the book. You don't get the you, – you hear the whoosh of an email leaving and then you're like, here we go. Uh, that's another chapter done. Like I think that's what I kind of – I really enjoyed putting the book together but it was draining in a kind of different way. Like I didn't – you don't get – the feedback you get is from a man called Clive, which, by the way – has the same name as my father-in-law. So getting emails of feedback from a man with my father-in-law's name was a lot like just like, oh, got some thoughts, do you, Clive? Um, but did, the, you, did you read your book? Have you? Is there an audio book? Yes. And that was. Did, that, I mean, it's, what a horrible experience that is. Did oh, you, my God. Were, work, did you work off the manuscript that's in the book? And if there were, say, a couple of words that were misspelled, uh, and they'd come, you know, maybe a nothing when you meant note, noting when you meant nothing or something like oh, that. Oh, there are loads of, uh, t- <laughs> there are loads of typos in my book. Yes. I don't know how. There's a few. Yeah, so. which I don't know what, I don't know what I meant to do about that. I've told them, they've done a reprint of it as well, there's, but I'm like, Jesus mostly, Christ, guys. They're mostly ones that wouldn't have got spotted because the word that's misspelled became another word, like a nothing to a uh, noting or like those yeah, sort yeah. of things. Just a couple where you're like, oh, yeah, an autocorrect that went wrong. You know, that's yeah. <laughs> and I think, and I did notice them a lot. Like we went through when we were reading the audiobook and went yes. through a note, or even just like um, realizing, like, you know, because there's recipes in there. As I was reading through the recipe, going, wait, this doesn't make any, that measurement's different than it was up there. Like, am I going <laughs> to. Am I going to poison someone? Oh, because I, I also because there's recipes in it. They yeah. part of the book contract was uh, in big bold letters that said you cannot put in recipes for poison or a bomb. It's like Jesus, like that's in there because someone's tried to put a recipe for a bomb in there one time. Um, the yeah, it, reading it was a harrowing experience because yeah, I made them. It's five days of four-hour sessions of reading it, and I made the mistake on the first day of doing it with gusto, mm. and you, then you've got to match that energy that for like four fucking days. <laughs> fucking hell. And just losing interest in yourself <sighs> so quickly. So it's like, I think it's the same with like, are you, how, and if this is too inside baseball, that's fine, but how involved, say you've done a special, are you involved pretty heavily in that edit? No. Yeah, see, I am, and I, I like, and I, I always go into it with gusto, and then by, by edit four, I'm like, can we just cancel this? I fucking hate this. There's not a one funny thing in this whole thing. I've like, seen my we logical, which is on the ABC. I've seen once uh, because I had to cut ten minutes out of it, so I had to watch it to decide which ten. It was an easy cut. It was fine. Yeah. should have should have done it while I was actually fucking touring the show. It would have made yeah. a better show. <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> Isn't that the thing? I, I I quite like owning things for that reason of like, you know, and we were talking about kind of future-proofing things and like, you know, language changing and stuff. I did like my first proper little special that was on the ABC years ago and then we got it back. And, it's, and every now and then like, I don't know, like Channel 10 buys it for like 
a shilling and a chicken every couple of years. And it doesn't even really make any sense. It's a show about marriage equality. I don't know why Channel 10 keeps buying it. This doesn't make any sense anymore. Um, but we were able, to, by still owning it, I'm able to kind of, there was a chunk in it that just didn't feel right anymore. And it's like, well, I'm going to take that little bit. Get, over the years, it's going to get to the point where it's just like a five-minute special that yeah. no one can. Here's just, what's left. Yeah. <laughs> That'll be the name of my last show, I think. Here's what's left. I love that, though, what you're saying, because I think that what you're doing, being involved in the editor, I think that's actually like, it's following the project right through to its natural conclusion, and that makes a it makes a lot of sense. But this is why I've never been like I talk like I've made a career like I've got a television career. There's like no doubt about that. But I'm not a television person, and part of the reason is that I don't ever really consider anything that I do to be television. What I consider myself to do is put on a live show in front of an audience. Yeah. Like I make a show and we film it all, and that hour that we film on the night that's the show that i made like yeah. I made, and then with what i've provided like i mean i go into a paper edit and like we talk about what should stay and stay out but after that i never like i don't watch the show like i've there's i mean i probably haven't seen 75 percent of the stuff that i've made like you know occasionally i have to check in for reasons but if i don't need to I don't watch. Like it always remains in my head what we recorded on a Tuesday night, my kind of part of it's done. And it's the same with my stand-up shows. Like if I record those, I'm like, well, I've, I've recorded it. I can't edit jokes in. So we can decide what to take out. But other and than I, that. I think that's know. how it fucking should be, right? Like I, I think I, as a TV consumer, I came up in like, you know, I was watching TV in the 90s and into the 2000s and stuff. And, you know, that kind of era of, in Australia, like Good News Week and that, and like the, you know, for the, this producer called um, Ted Robinson who made a lot of those shows. And there was, it was chaos. There was chaos kind of like coming off the screen. And I think, you know, like the glass house is the same, you know, it's almost the same set. Um, the, I think it was uh, parts of yeah, the yeah, same set. Yeah, I think yeah. you're the, fine. The big, the big mirror wall. <laughs> yeah, um, there, was, there was some repurposing done. Yeah. We no, didn't but have I a loved, huge like, budget. But, that, but I loved, like, and but there was this kind of feeling of, oh, they're capturing something. Mm. Like the, they're not making TV, they're capturing a show. And I did, like, question everything for the first time the other night and there's a feeling to being a performer when you've been on a few panel shows where you can tell the difference of, like, there was whole chunks of that episode that we knew inside of them, these aren't, this isn't going to wear. There's no way this is going to wear. But you don't stop. I've been on shows before where they will stop you and go, like, guys, come on. And, like, let's. But it's like, no, we're doing this for the audience because if we stop now, the audience in the room are going to go cold. And it's that difference. I think it's, like, it's. It's good that shows like that still exist, I think, because that to me is the best type of TV, the kind of like, yeah, you're right. I've never thought about it that way. Like you don't, you don't make TV, you make a show and they put it on TV. Uh, so I'm really fascinated by starting out again. Like, you know, as in like starting out again, in, like in a stand-up sense, you've toured something for two years, like, and not just toured it, like. It was an award-winning show. This is the other thing about this show. Like, I mean, it was one of the best show at the Melbourne and Sydney comedy festivals. Yes. Yeah. I'm yeah. right in saying that, yes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was like kind of, I guess, like you'd been working towards 
this moment in a way. Like, you know, your career had been taking this yeah. trajectory like as a stand-up. As you said, you tried on a whole bunch of things. You started very young. You tried on some things. You found your own voice and you kind of felt like you'd been working towards this moment of saying, I'm here now. Like this is yeah. – I've arrived as like one of the people who – I'm not one of the people trying to do this anymore. I'm one of the people who does this, right? And so then you've had two years of that. Like, you know, kind of recognized as the best thing you've done, regardless of whatever yeah. that means. And but, then you know, someone else like wins it. those awards and no, no one cares anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, of course. Of course yeah. that is true. But but you have to care about what you do next. And so when you sit down with the blank page and you think about, are you touring next year? Is that yeah. like the time schedule? So. Yeah. Where does it start? When's the first time you do like essentially what will be the show in in an order? Like when, what's your timeline for that? The first time, so I'm doing like a couple fringes that will be like, you know, notes on stuff. I call the, I book in seasons now and I call it, these are my new jokes, no refunds. And that, you know, people come and watch that mess and it's great and I really enjoy doing that. And then Melbourne Comedy Festival this year will be the first. And I'm even that I think... There's a bit of even kind of fun I'm having in this way, I think, where I'm doing Comedy Republic, which is a, you know, I know the bookers. I, I like I am a co-owner <laughs> of that. Um, but it's it's 130 seats and I'm going to do the whole season and then, you know, if it, I'd imagine it, I'd, I would hope it will sell well and then we might add some kind of bigger rooms. But I wanted to like, there's something, and I'd, I don't mean this as romantic as it sounds, but like I wanted, I was very lucky in the last two years to do my show in some quite big rooms and I'm quite looking forward to, because Melbourne, if people don't know, like you, you put the show together, but Melbourne's kind of one of the first like main, you know, it's a, it's the first kind of big comedy festival. And sometimes that show is maybe not as, as sharp as it, sh- it should be. Um, well, or like I mean, you're still if they, wa- if they it. wanted it to be as sharp as they'll have to move it to August or whatever yeah. so we can get a little run up. <laughs> but, but then like- we'd be talking about them in August. We'd be like, well, if they wanted it, they'd put it in April next year. Um, not good attention spans or good with uh, I deadlines. Mean, I, I will say this about like the poor people of Adelaide who over the years have oh. seen some fucking stinkers from me. Oh, and, and like they've seen some good ones as well, but it does yeah. like – and I'm like, well, this is the problem with it being before Melbourne is that, like, you're going to get a whole bunch of people. Like, Brisbane's never seen a fucking bad show because yeah. <laughs> they do it after Melbourne. Yeah. It's, like, perfect. I've, like, just spent a month getting it absolutely perfect. Well done, I Brisbane. often in Adelaide walk off stage saying, I'll, I'll bring the show back when it's yeah. done. Bye. Yeah. Thank you. Like, <laughs> it's kind of um, – but, yeah, and so I'm really looking forward to doing it. I'm doing it at 6 o'clock. I used to th- I used to really yeah, romanticize okay. the fact that I was like a mm-hmm. I'm a nine forty I'm a di- I'm a dirty bird and people are going to come and it's not and then realizing no I just kind of talk about my marriage um, the but six trying- six is interesting to me though because I'm doing an early show this year as well but it's taken me a lot longer to kind of get used to the earlier show and part of it was dictated by my ABC audience yeah, they quite yeah. like an early show yeah <laughs> so they're not I can still stay up late but they can't so. <laughs> And I, I think it is that kind of thing we're realizing, and this might sound a bit douchey, but making doing it a bit more on my terms that will be have a nice life for me around that month as well. It's a fucking intense month, and if putting it on at six o'clock 
isn't going to affect anyone else's life, but I know that I'm going to, I'll be able to go out for dinner afterwards and have a nice time. I'll have a lovely show and then I'll, or I'll be able to go home or something and not be, you know, waiting around. And it's like realizing that you can, with a bit more agency at the moment, I can make my life make a bit more sense around it and not like prey at this uh, kind of deity of, comedy and like hurting for the audience when it's like no they'll have a good time at six o'clock they can go out for dinner too maybe we'll see each other at a restaurant i mean in in like i think it's a great like i mean it's smart this feels really fun to me like you know it it has like great control like you said you're taking like some of the i think part of the thing that i sometimes think about the festival is man, I've spent a lot of time not having fun at this festival when everybody else is having fun. Like I get to go to this really fun place every year and by the nature of having to work so hard and never get to see anyone's shows or blah, 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 blah. You know, like whereas you've done something where you're like, oh, I could like have a really great festival running the show properly because, you know, you have permission to do that in a size, a room that size. Experiment if you want to experiment, try different things like you know, what's next, like all that sort of stuff, but also then make it a lifestyle decision as well. And also feel like to be, and look, this this could all crash and burn, Will, and it could be financially not good. Everything Um, could be, Rhys. Yeah. Let's be honest, like everything could be. Oh, no, I hadn't even thought about that. (laughs) What? (laughs) Mate, you owned a bar during COVID. You know, it can't get worse. Hey. (laughs) I would say, though, the good thing about that was (laughs) may I recommend having a fully stocked commercial bar at the start of a global health crisis and you can write yourself a little note to go check on the bar and just fill milk crates up with spirits. Um, My head changed shape during during coronavirus because we owned a bar and just drank it all. Um, and, um, And I'd also just bought a bunch of weed the i i don't um yeah i think it it's just i think the work will be better as well yes. like the product will be better right. because i have a big fear of um delivering bad stuff like or delivering which everyone does i know that's not a <laughs> but um i want i i'm almost setting it up this way to and I was about to say to lower the expectations. It's not about that, but it's it's to give myself a run up to for people to be able to enjoy the work. I think there's a real feeling. I've definitely done shows before that I wasn't ready to do, where you know you're in a big room and you've had to hide notes somewhere on the stage because the show isn't done, <laughs> and it's not the audience knows. And I want. I want an opportunity to, and I'm not saying this in a, I'm doing it all for the, it's none of that bullshit. I want it to be nice for me. And I think it's just, I feel like I'm finally getting to an age and to a point where I want it to be nice for me as well as the audience. It's funny that you've thought of that so early though. I mean, it is part of your life. I mean, I do think that you, you know, this is one of the themes that comes through in the book is about the idea of like balancing yeah, what you do with who you are and, like, which is interesting because you're clearly someone who is ambitious. Like, you've had, like, you know, clear ambition, but you've managed to somehow, like, make space in your life for that to manifest itself in other places than just being about you and your career, it seems. I am wildly lucky 
that exactly like I'm a very ambitious person quite proudly, but I'm just very lucky that um, exactly what I wanted to do when I was 15 mm. <laughs> had happened. <laughs> yeah, I like, mean, sure. Yeah. No, but it, like it, it like I we used to watch the galas and all that kind yeah. of like um, I'm insanely lucky and um, I think it, having a conversation with Kyron, my husband about this the other night that like uh, I think what's – I. I'm always really interested in people that um, don't have a plan. Like I, I think it's different and I, I don't know if maybe you're the same where I've always had I had an idea of where I vaguely wanted to be, vaguely but not to the – no specifics. So like, you know, like a kind of – you know when you're first thinking of like a show, this is how I do it at least, you kind of think of like – and this sounds so douchey but like an ethos. Like there's kind of, you might have not written a single word yet, but you can have this kind of feeling of like, I want the show to kind of feel like this. I think that's kind of how I feel about my career as a whole. Like, and now kind of more my life. Like, it's like, I kind of think I want to be here, but no kind of like, it's the people, I think people start getting called climbers when they have a very clear point plan. And they're often the ones that I think get, disappointed because if you don't get to that then that doesn't happen and then you don't get to that whereas if you're kind of I think you're someone who's really done this and actually I think it's like your generation of comic did this really well where it because there weren't as many options coming up right like it was kind of this you know the shape of comedy was so different it was more kind of like we're all working this out together kind of and I think that is lost a little bit now like People are going into it really like my generation of comics were like this, and then the next generation are even more like this. Like that kind of, I heard I um, was listening to your podcast with Ann Edmonds, and you guys were talking about the kind of TikTok kind of comics, and I was really I like literally said out loud to myself, "Yes," when you were like talking about um, how they they don't get that kind of camaraderie. When you, when you become big on the internet and you don't and you're suddenly in big rooms and that sort of thing. And I think that but, – but they've got these kind of 10-point plans of how I'm going to get famous and how I'm going to become a big comedian. And I think I'm lucky that I haven't really had that. I've just had like um, kind of like, oh, I think I want to be like a stand-up mostly and do this type of comedy hopefully in the next 10 years. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean – I, no, I, I love this and, you know, I love talking about these sort of things because I think they're important conversations and I was really lucky in my generation in a lot of ways, which was that we were honestly the last generation that ran away to join the circus. Like if, if anyone from my age and generation of people went into stand-up comedy because they thought it was a good way to earn a living and like build a career, then they were the ones who – like are now not there. Like, I mean, there, there wasn't, that was, would be an unreal, unless you considered yourself to be a futurist. I often say this to people. I'm like, like, I didn't know. Like it's yeah. <laughs> in retrospect, it looks like I knew, right? Like in retrospect, it looks like I had a plan. And I've even had people say to me, they're like, oh, I'd like to have a career like yours. I'm like, I don't know what it is. I don't know how it happened. I didn't like, I can't tell you how it happened because I don't know. But also there was that opportunity to start to move into different spaces without 
it being so much that there wasn't a community, right? Like now those different spaces have meant that like, yeah, you can become a really big like star and not have your own community or your audience is your community. And that's a, just a different shape to, you know, your relationship is with your audience and they shape you and what you think's appropriate and what jokes you can make and all those sort of things in a way that I think sometimes it's when the internet comedian rises and they like, I mean, there's a particularly popular internet comedian at the moment who's just done a special, a stand-up special. And uh, like, just like I'm, I, so this is the, part of the industry that now I'm like, this is where I'm at in this. Some young guy comes along. I finally start to see that some other people are mad at someone. So that but once, once people I know are mad at someone, I'm like, all right, I've got to work out what's Let's going on here. Yeah. I, up until this point, I'm not engaged, but the minute yeah. that someone I know is mad about it, I've got to go, all right, well, I've got to find out what they're also mad about. And, um, it, it's not for me is the point. This guy is like he's a you know popular internet comedian, does sort of crowd work at shows, not the sort of crowd work that I really enjoy. It's a different style to the sort of stuff that I do but seems to be very popular. TikTok he's, crowd work. Yeah, TikTok crowd work. Yeah, and I am not a really big fan of TikTok crowd work because like I don't really – anyway, whatever. That's a whole conversation for a different time. But Oh, but I'm upset. I'll just say very quick. I'm yeah. a – you know, I think at the moment there's – my agents are like, we should get some, like, clips up of you and doing things. Whereas, like, I am not – I don't do crowd work. I don't do – and I work – I'm not saying that everyone works hard on their jokes. But I, I'm not I'm not very prolific. Like, I do a show once or twice, like, every year or two – but that show is that show and I'm not writing too much extra on top of that. So there's not too much footage. <laughs> like if as soon as I start putting clips up, it's like, well, we've, we're allowed to do this 60 times, guys, before <laughs> we have run out of stuff to say. And I remember years ago I was doing a gig, like a big lineup show at a theatre, and there was an internet comedian on, like a kind of famous one. And what was really interesting to me on the night was like all the comics, even if we didn't, some of us were really close friends and then some of us kind of didn't know each other that well. But you all kind of muck in together. You're in the shared green room and you're all doing the show together. He sat away, like he didn't know how to interact. Like he didn't know how to like get in because he didn't know any of us. And even if we we tried like to kind of like, hey, man, like how's the show going and blah, blah, blah. But they, they just are kind of, it's this interesting new and I'm not saying this in a shady way. I'm more just it just was really interesting to me. Not, like- not right, or, not right or wrong, but I do think that there is some value. And I don't mean this in a like as in this is bad or this is good because I am absolutely don't think anything about any of those things. Like um, I do think that being amongst the community can be damaging in some ways. Like everyone can start to sound the same. Everyone can make the same sort of jokes. Like you see these themes run rife like pandemics through the comedy community. You're like, why has everyone got a joke about this this year, right? And you can really kind of identify that. That's groupthink that why comes out of – Why is everyone's poster blue? Yeah, right? Whereas these people are in isolation. So there's an argument for creativity in one way, which is that you are not soaking up these like groupthink influences of the rest. The downside is that you don't have a friend come to you at a gig one day that you're doing in front of like 14 people and going, hey, you know that like domestic violence joke that like you're opening with? Like it's just, it's not as, 
it's it's a bad joke and it's not as if you want it to be edgy or provocative or any of the things that you think it is it's just not very good at that either like it's just not a good joke like subject matter aside i mean and it shouldn't be subject matter aside but yeah but you know let's assume that you're making the greatest joke of all time in in this area you're not and i think that when you're in a community that stuff gets knocked off you whereas if you're answering to an internet algorithm and your audience is the metric then there will be some people who absolutely do love that and respond to that and they then become your predominant because you kind of each that joke shakes off the people who don't like it builds more of the people who do like it and then if they're the only people you're getting feedback from you just go more and more into that area rather than being influenced by your peers and it's like views don't equal agreement like as it often i would say like you know when people you get feedback from an audience so quickly but online it's like and this is such a this is a basic thought that everyone's had but like Often you look at, you know, and we're always told, like, don't look at the comments and, like, you know, don't don't read reviews and that kind of thing. Of course, like, a bunch of people do and it's, like, toxic and that kind of thing. And I also think the softer end of that spectrum of, like, being in a community is, like, I have maybe, like, five very close comedy mates that we all feel comfortable enough to say when we're all working on new stuff to come up to each other afterwards and go, hey, just so you know, that's a little bit close to someone else's joke about that. Like even stuff like that, like in terms of the health of the industry. And that's, like, I mean, but that is kindness. Like, yeah. Because, you know, th- there is – I mean, Pete Holmes has got a bit on his new special about um, uh, I, you know, being asked if you're a robot or not that like is similar enough to something I wrote in my book that is similar enough to something that John Mulaney did in his special, but it's different. Like it's his yeah. own take on it. Like, yeah. and I, I think it independently stands. It's certainly, Absolutely. it is certainly like Pete Holmes hasn't certainly watched John Mulaney's special and read my book and gone, I'm going to write this thing. Like that's clearly independent thought. Like it's not, you know, but, but there's a part of me that would be like, oh, that'd just carry me around. Right. Like I'd just be like, Ugh. like even somebody thinking, that that was the case, you'd be like, oh, it just annoys me, right? Like you want somebody else to go like, hey, this sounds a bit like this or to even just check it like sometimes. You're like when a thought comes to you. So uh, I was at work out the back of QAM and I was having – we were talking about um, why I hated quizzes. In the office they do a quiz all the time and I hate quizzes. Ooh. And because I, I – Do you mean like hard I'm, chat? Are you talking about hard chat? Yeah, I was talking yeah, about hard yeah, quiz, Tom I mean. Gleason in particular. Yeah. I was like, I hate quizzes. No, they do an office quiz and I was like, this is my nightmare. Everyone's sitting around the office. And I was like, I under like existential questions. And like, and then the, the guy I was talking to was like, you should get like an existential quiz book. And I said, yeah, but in the back there would only be more questions, no answers, right? Like now, <laughs> but that sounds like, that would be someone else's joke. Like, you know what I mean? Like it sounds so fully formed that you're like, I can't be the first person who's like thought of that, right? That's got to be a joke that's been told. I've Googled it. I've Googled a whole bunch of different variations of like what I – I can't find anything. That's yours, the same, baby. <laughs> well, but at the same time, it would be nice if someone like is just like, oh, no, no, you know, like Reese told that on the show week two, right? <laughs> Because that's the scary thing, right? Like you just yeah. know. And I also, I often, so a version of this I had where very early days I was, I think I was very lucky as well that people were being very nice to me 
but I was still a pretty crook comic. Like, yeah, like I said, I wanted to be Sarah Silverman. I wanted to be, but didn't have the tools to do that. And I got to the point where I started to not like my material. And I would have been like maybe 23 or something and just started to not like, but, you know, felt quite trapped by it. And it literally took Zoe Kumsma backstage just going and, you know, feeling comfortable enough to say this to me. It was just going, then just stop doing it, you fucking idiot. Like, Like, and just having someone, and I think that's the important part of the community, of having someone be able to almost physically shake you and go, yeah, it's not good. Like, instead of, you know, a million comments going, don't listen to them. Fuck the haters. It's like, no, sometimes listen to the haters. Every now and then, yeah. <laughs> listen to I think, them. I think, I think sometimes that's great and someone you can trust, right? Because you don't know if the internet commenter is someone you can trust, but this is someone you can trust. And to bring it back full circle to whether comedy changes anything, like to go back to Paul F. Tompkins, because I'm always happy to talk about Paul F. Tompkins, and I'm sure that his awkwardness with you has less to do with um, you know, you you online and more to do with just the general way he goes about the world. Oh, but yeah. And it, one was, of the- <laughs> it wasn't awkward. It was more just like I, I think I was being intense. And I'm sure if I yes. met him now, I would he's not. He's the best. Like he's, he's the one greatest. of the sweetest guys but also an incredible comedian. But I remember this Prince thing, the $500 Prince ticket. Like the thing I remember about that routine is that he'd managed to talk about going to see Prince for 12 minutes and nothing had gone wrong and nothing was shitting yes. on anything, right? Yeah. Like, like this wasn't a story about I went to see Prince and he's all the disaster. Like the, my storytelling of a night like that would often be around and this is what went wrong or I was running late. I'd add some element of like stakes, drama to the, this story, right? Like and he didn't. He just told this like quite joyful story but still hilariously funny and even in that like I think about that a lot when I sit down to write something for my show and I think is this worth talking about and then I think you know what remember that night that Paul F. Tompkins told that 12-minute story about Prince and it was so good it made you go and see Prince like sometimes even just in the shape of your storytelling like it, it might be how you are teaching someone else and Yes, the more that our friends, our colleagues, our peers can have an open conversation around us, like in the spirit of wanting to be better, right? That's what you get from your friendship group is like, we all want you to be better. Here is some advice that like make, you know, might make it better for you. It's it's a cool thing. And I, like, it's a part of the industry that I really kind of miss being out of the scene, right? And you've done an incredible job, you and Kyron, with obviously building that community at Comedy Republic, which, you know, has been a bit of an anchor for that Melbourne scene. You know, you've you've done the you've done a very smart thing, which is what I always used to like to do at the end of a night out when I was a young man, which was have a nice house so that everyone would want to come back to my house because I liked <laughs> yeah. I liked or I liked already being home. Like I was like, I happy for the party to continue, but I just like I feel I can enjoy myself now that I know that at any stage I could just pop off to bed. And like I feel like Comedy Republic has obviously done that a little for the Melbourne comedy scene and a particular part of the Melbourne comedy scene. It's given it a home and an anchor to and you know, so I think that's that's a pretty incredible thing as well and probably great for building that that community of people who can you know support and challenge and you know collaborate with each other and and be a community like we are so proud of the fact that we've become 
the place that people go after another gig. Like if they've had a bar show or something, they come and have a drink at Republic and it's like that is so dreamy and that's all we ever wanted, I think. Well, Reese, it has been an absolute pleasure to have oh, you thanks, on mate. the show. Your book is called Dish. It is available Everywhere, everywhere. There's lots of it. There's copies of it everywhere. I bought it at an airport. There was a lot of them there and I purchased it there and I asked the woman because I just was curious and nosy. I said, uh, she she commented on what I was buying. I said, have you sold any? She goes, I've sold three today. So there you go. (gasps) That's nice. That's Four I mean, at and, least. It, and it was, and I mean, I've got to be honest with you, I'm pretty sure it was a morning flight. So that's ah, a good start to the day. <laughs> a lot of people reading about anchovy toast on a flight. Um, well, no, I've, thank I've you. enjoyed the recipes, even though I'm a vegetarian. I still enjoyed Oh, yeah, there's a lot of meat in there. Sorry about that. Lot of Shit meat. load of meat. A lot of descriptions of meat, the joy wet of meat. meat. A lot of wet yeah, meat. A lot of meat talk. <laughs> yeah. A lot of visceral meat. Uh, Reese, thank you so much for doing the show. Thank you, Will. Listener.